You're listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by the Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book. Je t'aime, mon chéri, je suis en toilette. <laughs> je suis en toilette. <laughs> I love my dear, I'm a toilet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, perfect. I'll use that as your intro. <laughs> yes, please do. <laughs> Hello, Nicholas Berling here. I'm joined with two very special guests today for a discussion on classism. And my first guest here is Matthew Ramadan. Matthew is an independent certified financial planner and wealth manager. And I'm also joined by Aradia Fair, who is a stateless trans woman with a background in music. Uh, Matthew, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so I was born in Canada, technically, in, in beautiful Swift Current, Saskatchewan, if anyone knows where that is. Uh, but my family left when I was like four years old, uh, and we moved to the Middle East. Uh, grew up in an extremely affluent family. Um, and then uh, due to a divorce when I was a young teenager, very quickly basically lost that all. I moved back to Canada when my mom uh, kind of seized the family home as the only asset that she had kind of any control over because it was in Canada, one of the family homes. And uh, yeah, and so kind of have experienced, I guess, multiple classes in terms of like uh, growing up. And then, uh, yeah, did my degree at UVic, put myself through university, and um, I now work in, yeah, in finance in a in a very interesting industry to be any sort of minority. <laughs> yeah. Great, thank you. Uh, and a radio, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? You want me to talk about myself? Just, yeah, it doesn't have to be, you know, a super big intro, okay. but just, you know, who you I've are. I've lived here in Canada most of my life, but I was born in the United States. But I didn't bring my documentation with me when I moved here. So I can't do things like get a job or get a driver's license or get married or anything. I can't do anything. But at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm white and I have a roof over my head. And so I live better than a lot of other people do. But even though I have no resources, I have a tremendous amount of privilege. And that's all due to class. That's what we're here to talk about today. This is a question for both of you. Wealth is primarily associated with class because wealth typically relates to power. So with that in mind, do you consider yourselves to be upper, middle, or lower class in that respect? I mean, I certainly don't identify with any, but I don't know if that's because I haven't considered it or because it just isn't applicable. I mean, a, a lot of the things that come with class don't really apply to me, because so I just sort of sit at home and take care of my baby. But maybe you have a better answer. I think that class and wealth can be somewhat separated. Um, I think I have a unique perspective on this because I did, I grew up in British schools and the Brits still have a very, very active and, and alive class system whereby just someone's accent can identify where they grew up and what class that they grew up in and it's hard to change your accent. Um, but someone can be of upper class but maybe not the most wealthy and someone can be of like even a lower class origin, but due to their own efforts or luck or a combination thereof, end up quite wealthy. You know what I mean? You, you see that? So I think the two can be separated somewhat. Um, 
but that's not your question. <laughs> right. So we will get to a point in the discussion where we're going to talk about the accent piece mm. as well as whether or not wealth should be sort of how class is defined. Yeah. Right? With the understanding that a lot of people view class based off of income. Yeah. Um, just trying to get a sense of sort of if you identify with, with a class based off of that, and if so, what that might be. Yeah, that's a good, yeah. In terms of, I guess, yeah, I, if I was to put like a definition to it, I would say probably upper middle class, just in terms of, uh, I, I, yeah, like. Uh, this isn't particularly relevant, but there's this funny saying that every American sees themselves as a disenfranchised millionaire. <laughs> Explains like the Republican that. Party quite well too. Oh yes, yes. But I, I think that yeah, I think that um, based on societal definitions and and quite frankly, and also the fact that like yes, I am queer, so I am you know a member of minority group that way, and I've got that against me in the societal structure. Mm -hmm. But really, I have a university education. I'm white. I'm male. I'm you know I'm a Canadian citizen. All of these things work in my favor. You so, got like, that privilege, baby. Exactly. So, I'm definitely, I would say, probably upper middle class. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wouldn't say I'm upper class, but yeah. Yeah. And, and for context here, we're all queer to some degree. Right. <laughs> so, we're yes. all kind of dealing with that aspect, but we're also all whites, but we're all from different, I guess, economic classes, right? Right. I would consider myself to be sort of lower middle class, and you would be upper middle class. And you didn't really identify with a class there. And we'll, get into maybe if there's a different way that you would identify with class as opposed to based off of income, because as you've mentioned, being a stateless person, you can't actually earn an income. No. That's crazy. Sorry. That's tough noodles. That is mm -hmm. tough noodles. Mm -hmm. I think to start with, I want to get a sense of what classism is, because we've talked about how a lot of people will view classism as it relates to income. Mm -hmm. But... What exactly does classism mean to each of you? Girl, I don't know. I have a dictionary. Google it. <laughs> <laughs> I think classism would, to me, mean <clears throat> the initial assumption you make about somebody based on how they present themselves. Like, that can be one thing. It's also access. And it's also like, so, I mean... I work in an industry where who you know is incredibly important. And if you grew up going to the right schools in the right social situations in the right like circles, you just have such a massive leg up over. And I think that's true in many, many industries. Um, so I think that's, yeah, I think that's my definition of classism. I don't know if that was a good And one. that doesn't go away because no. you can lose all your money. But if you have that class, I mean, you're probably just going to get right back up there in just no time. Yeah, but no you have time. a lot easier of a way to get yourself back up there, for sure. That's why. Yeah. That kind of brings me to the question of how does classism affect us? And I think we're all affected differently by classism. But what are your experiences with classism and how it's affected you? People uh, respect me more than they ought to because of the way I behave or the way that I look they'll just give me things when in reality I'm like basically a street urchin but I'm not treated that way and that's because of classism there's a lot of overlap with whiteness and I think it's probably good to put into perspective that classism relates significantly to whiteness where we live here but if you were in a different part of the world 
being white might actually make you lower class if, if you're in a minority. Although, Isn't that neat? <laughs> although based on the sort of colonization of the world, even in situations where white people are the minority, that's not necessarily always going to be the case either. Well, yeah, when you said that, I was kind of thinking, like, there's probably not a lot of places in the world where you wouldn't be considered privileged for being white. Like, I'm thinking, you know, my husband and I were just in Egypt, and we were talking about the fact that you know, him as an Arab man, the more tanned, because he was enjoying tanning, the more tanned he got and the darker he got. Because when we first arrived, he looked quite white because we live in North America and he hadn't had a lot of sun exposure. And so he was noticing he was treated very differently when he had more of a white colored skin to then when he got more tanned as the trip went on and he looked more like a local versus how I would be treated. Um, and Was it better or worse? Oh, I... White people are treated absolutely better than the locals because it's assumed that the white people have money, the white people are the tourists, the white people are the, you know what I mean? In some ways, you're taken advantage of a little bit more. Like they try to scam me and they wouldn't dare to Well, there's try a huge problem him. with uh, tourists and police in Egypt. There's. Oh, Egypt. It was all, it's a big problem. You watched the Best Ever Food Review show on I that? I did. Yeah. No, I did. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, Egypt's a very interesting country. Uh, but I the really, locals are very nice. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, it was interesting. Anyhow, it was an interesting experience. But I think that, like, you would notice, especially if you think about job hunting, like, or if you're looking at, uh, yeah, employment or even the, the access to services, I feel like probably in a lot of the world you're treated very well if you're white. Versus... A lot of the world has been colonized by white people, so kind yeah. of. I'll do it. Yeah, that'll do it. There's that structural history. Right. But I think a big part of it is that people are, are uh, romanticize American culture in a lot of places. It's like, oh, the American dream, and mm -hmm. obviously whiteness falls into that. Yeah, I mean, when you look at people around the world who know how to speak English, a lot of them will say, we learn English because there were American TV shows on. Yeah. It, wherever you go in the world, like, they're just kind of broadcast everywhere, and I guess that's the impact that you have when you're wealthy and when you're sort of just putting your name out there, colonizing all of these different things that just get the, the white brand in front of people, mm -hmm. for lack of a better term. The next question is just a, a theoretical question, but if it were possible to change your class, would you? Man, that's a bit of a monkey's paw, isn't it? A little bit. You ask anybody to change anything, they're like, oh, I don't know. I love that saying, monkey's paw. Yeah. Like, I, that's a great saying. Because, you know, you know what a monkey's paw is. Yeah, right? yeah, but I hadn't really thought of it. That's, okay, interesting. Um... <laughs> Sorry, I feel like I cut you off. Were you? No. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I guess selfishly, yes. Yeah, absolutely I would. Because, like, I'm just, you know, why wouldn't I make myself in a better position than I am? That being said, I'm, like, I'm coming from a place of being in a pretty good position. So, like... I, but I think, the, I think the human condition is that mo I feel like most people would say yes to that. My answer is, who needs class when you got ass, baby? <laughs> <laughs> this, this is the most raucous podcast I've hosted yet. <laughs> That's also an answer. That is, that is that, an answer. The answer is you. Everyone should. Uh, it, get, you'll get way further with class than ass. I mean, it depends um, on the situation, but... That's a good point. What do you want? Mm -hmm. 
so I, I'm kind of, I, I, with putting together this social justice coloring book, which this podcast based off of, I've been exploring a variety of different social justice issues and coming across classism I thought was quite interesting because mm. I don't know if I'd want to change my class. I don't know if I'd want to change my level of wealth because when I look at the world's wealth, if it were to be evenly distributed, I actually have more than the average. And to me, I, that sort of makes me feel uncomfortable that right. why, why should I have more than like, other people in the world? I live just as well as a rich person. Maybe not as well, but like good enough, right? But like if I was a rich person, I'd have to play the rich person game all day. I'd be like, oh, 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 oh my assets, oh. or any you know, all the fucking like the, the fucking white people shit, you know, but because I'm not in that shit, I don't have to do that. So you win some, you lose some. I'm feeling pretty good about my scenario, but also, I can't even get a job at McDonald's, so. Such a variety of perspectives on class, I think, or, or experiences, I mean, right? Like, we all experience the world in such different ways. Yeah. I will say, as someone who works with, with some individuals who are, wealth, who are quite wealthy, I probably work with, like, just to put that out there as well, I probably, my average client is, and the average person I work with is probably also upper middle class, mm -hmm. or maybe like a lower upper class. I don't work like with extreme wealth. Um, but uh, I would say that, you know, just because you're wealthy doesn't mean you're happy. There's a lot of wealthy people who are not necessarily happy. And it's maybe a whole different set of problems than if, like, you're not necessarily worried about rent, they're not necessarily about worried about bills, but... There's a whole other set of problems. It doesn't mean you have a happy family dynamic. It doesn't mean you have any of that. You know what they say, more money, more problems. <laughs> For some reason, I knew you were going to say that. But <laughs> um, but that, like, not to say, like, oh, boo-hoo, like, these poor wealthy people also have issues. But more, like, you know, it's not a, money doesn't solve everything. No. In some ways, I think the, the grind is, is this glorified idea that if you just work nonstop, you'll be able to get wealth that will make you happier or make you feel whole in some way. Yeah. But, and you know when you what? get there, you realize that it's not actually the case. But you know what does solve everything is class because it gives you respect. It gives you, like, resources. Mm. It, it, it actually gives you, th and it, it gives you something to work with, and it's, it's real, and it affects people. It's, it's not, like, transient, like, money. It's, like, that, that's who you are, and wherever you go, you're going to own that shit it's it's a, it's a different way of living so i'm going to jump ahead to a question i was going to ask a little later in that case which is around whether or not you can actually change your class like can you can you identify out of a class can you yeah. you know can you uh yeah. make more money yeah. to get yourself into a different class in the same way that like a kid would learn from their parents you can obviously just study rich people and figure out what they do and you know obviously a con artists do that all the time there's Netflix specials about it. Very interesting stuff. So you wouldn't say that you're actually changing your class. You're just conning people into thinking that you changed I your mean, class? I mean, everything's bullshit anyway. I mean, that's just semantics <laughs> at this point. <laughs> All right. Do you but, have a perspective? Yeah, I mean, I do think that, like, yes and no. Like, it depends on, I, I guess it also depends on your definition of class. But I guess, as we're defining it, it's very typical. Mm -hmm. Um in the sense of like mannerisms and way you behave and way you interact. And I would say that, um, though I can't think of any off the top of my head, I'm sure there's, there's many examples of people who are incredibly wealthy, but don't maybe perform or act the way an upper class person 
would in our in our definition. I think of someone like just right off the top of my head, like Cardi B. I'm sure Cardi B is not worrying about paying her rent next month. But at the same time, I don't think we would define Cardi B, who hopefully isn't listening to this, um, as like acting like an upper class person. Well, she still maintains that the, sort of. There are certainly different uh, levels to it. Yeah, she, she wouldn't be at the top, obviously. Uh, you know, I think it's different. I think it's different for millionaires than it is for billionaires, and it's also very different for pop stars. The, the music industry is very weird. They they want to. You're supposed to have this image of wealth, but then in reality, the record label doesn't pay you, and it's all fake. So it's mm. it's. It's very weird when it comes to people like Cardi B and other musicians, because a lot of that's just performative. And I guess, yeah, and, and her, the way that, she, yeah, yes. that's all performative. And then, right. and then yeah. at the end of the day, because that's performative, they don't have the classism. Uh, they get, they're just left on the street. You hear it all the time. There's tons of rich, famous people that just, like, lose it all. It's because they don't have that experience, the know-how. I think also it's there's great. a factor of, like, lifting people up onto pedestals specifically for a class. Like, if you imagine... Uh, people who are living in a certain environment and they resonate with a musician who has also lived in that environment and they boost them up into a point where now they have incredible wealth, if they no longer represent that community, then their whole market that they're trying to reach is gone. It's, so it's, they kind of can't change well, class. It's, it's much more complicated than that. It's not the artists making those decisions. It's the, it's the record labels, marketing people, and... and and it's actually, it's not that deep. I mean, it, people will buy things if you just show it to them enough. It, they don't typically have strong opinions. And if they do, they usually don't even act on those opinions. They just take it. I, I think, though, to get back to your question, um, that was an excellent point. But it was just that, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, yes, you can change your, well, no, it's not, we're making it sound so easy, but you can change your wealth. But I think that class is, is as we're defining it, like a, a way of presenting yourself, way of interacting, and, and even just like, like your social circles that you grew up with or that you were in and that access, um, I think that's very hard to change, personally. I think that, that was kind of where I, I was thinking this conversation might get, which is, uh, get to, which is that class sort of transcends wealth mm. in a lot of ways. And... I think there's other factors uh, as well. Like a lot of people will define class as being upper, middle, and lower, which is almost purely related to income in, in some ways. But then there's working class, which could be low or middle income, um, but is sort of viewed as a class in and of itself. And then you have government agencies, which are sort of at a different level, or, or the government in general is at a different level. Elected officials are sort of a mm. class of their own. Then you have royalty, which is sort mm. of a class of its own. And then you get back into history where royals have sort of implemented their own class systems, which may or may not still apply in today's world. Um, and that's got to bring me to a question of some sort. So. It's almost about power and how naturally you exude that power. Right. In some ways, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, that does actually bring me to a question that I had on royalty. So... If you're adding royalty to this whole mix of, uh, of what, it, what class looks like or what classism looks like, um, our country, Canada, has a queen. Um, mm -hmm. Do you feel that royalty still plays a role in classism today in, in Canada in the lives that we're living here? Maybe if we want to steal some artifacts. <laughs> what else are we going to use them for? Mm -hmm. Well, so what I'm thinking like in England... 
I would very much say yes, there's still classism left over from royalty, even though there's now a government in place. Um, I wonder if the same applies to Canada, because I feel like we're sort of removed a little bit more from that monarchy than they are in England. Well, I think that the monarchy and royalty itself is sort of a dated concept, because the power doesn't lie within them anymore. It lies within the corporations, and that's what people want. They want the, the, the access to things. They want the power, like I said, and that, that comes from the money. It's, yeah, it's like it's not even relevant anymore. I so, think all that royalty stuff's probably going to fade away, except for the sake of tradition. Right, so you would say that royalty is in, a, in basically an upper-class setting just because they have access to lots of money. I mean, at this point, I think it's just there for the sake of tourism. Interesting. I think that's a good, um, just to provide some context, I come from like a very monarchist family. Yeah. Yes, this is one of the things know. that I knew when I invited you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, I'm a bit of a... I, I was thinking about this actually in advance of the podcast, uh, that I am a bit of a monarchist. I do have this like weird love for the queen. I have this weird uh, obsession with like, like I've bought a platinum jubilee plate from the UK as like a commemorative thing. Like I'm one of those people. But I very much inherited that from my great grandmother who I was very close with, who was like such a monarchist. Um, There's some nostalgia tied up in there. There is, and some like family tradition and like being from a very British uh British, German, Norwegian, but mostly British family. So, like, what's um, the attitude behind that? You just think the queen's neat? I don't get it. I think that's what it is. Well, that's the thing is that, like, I have this feeling, and then the moment I start trying to dive into it, I'm just like, I don't know why I have this feeling. It's almost like it's just learned behavior or tradition. What? I mean, the, part of that is probably why people respond to classism. Uh, is because, you know, you think the queen is cool. You look up to her, you, you see something that, you find comfort in that, you relate to that, you identify with it. And uh, so she's like, in a way, a leader. Obviously, she's the queen. But... I think there's something about having a figurehead that transcends politics or isn't involved in politics, technically, because the queen and the... They very much try to stay out of politics officially. But I think that... <laughs> Your point yeah. that you made about the power versus the tradition, absolutely, the monarchy at this point has no actual, there's no actual power. And they're not even, I mean, yes, they're all very well, wealthy, I, but they're not the I wealthiest. I get it, though. It's very, it's very comforting to have, like, an all-powerful figure to, like, look mm. towards. That's why people like God so much. But, like, right. Obviously, for some people, that the queen is their god, I suppose. <laughs> well, and the queen is technically the head of the Church of England, too. So, oh, so she's like the British Pope. Yeah, in a way. Yeah, yes. for the Anglican Church. Yes. Yeah, I mean, we can thank Henry VIII for that. Thanks, Henry. Just because he wanted to get a divorce. But anyhow. <laughs> um, but I think, that, I think that that's a very interesting... I mean, the reason we have such a system of class in a lot of the former British colonies is from the Brits, and the Brits maintain that very much so. And that's all due to the monarchy. Really, so that's where it all kind of filters. They down introduced from. class systems to uh, other countries. Like I think they brought it to India too. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think the Indians had quite a strong caste system before the Brits. In fact, I think the Brits really? used it to oh, help with their colonization. They exploited it. I think so. But I mean, there are certainly countries that I'm presuming many African countries. There's probably tons of countries that didn't have a class system. I actually think here. I don't think the aboriginals of Canada would have had such a strong, um, obviously you would have had a chief and whatnot, and I'm talking completely out of my knowledge here, but I don't imagine it was anywhere near as rich as what the Brits brought. It feels like the more uh, advanced society gets, the more that gap is probably going to increase. It's, I feel like there every- There is no class system, there is no wealth gap. 
Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like uh, it's sort of like a celebrity class in a sense when you look at the monarchy now, right. uh, where people are just wowed because they're popular. Totally. And, and they're kind of going, I don't, I don't really know why they're popular anymore, but they are and I'm into it. And um, there, there's sort of that aspect. And then I also think that societies in general typically will have hierarchies of some kind. Whether you consider that to be class or not is a whole other conversation. But you know, to your point about Indigenous people having chiefs, for instance, there's, there is still like a, a hierarchy system, even in a, a capitalist world, right? You've got your boss or... It all sort of looks like a pyramid scheme. <laughs> to, to be honest, I don't really know why pyramid schemes are illegal, because that's sort of how capitalism works. But, um, you know, you have one person at the top, and then you have people underneath them, and it just kind of always works. It out. In it's just way. one big scam. I mean, without going into, like, I feel like I could talk an hour about this, but uh, especially working with money. But uh, the difference with a pyramid scheme is that there's no actual product. There's no right. actual thing being I, I mean, sold. I do, like, I, I do actually understand yeah, 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 the yeah, differences yeah. there. No, I know. But I also view capitalism as being kind of like that, right? Like, it's not yeah, so much that I, I think pyramid schemes should not be illegal. It's just we should recognize that there are other kinds of pyramid schemes out there that are legalized. Definitely. Oh, 100%. And I think that what's interesting, two points. Um, one that I just thought of that was something you were talking about earlier. But, um, you know, I always say capitalism is the, it's kind of a, 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 a turn of an old Winston Churchill quote where he said, like, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the other ones we've ever tried. And I kind of say that with capitalism. Like, I agree that capitalism has a ton of failures and issues and inequalities, but at the same time, every other economic system we've ever tried, I think, is worse. So I, I, I don't know what the solution, I think some sort of, like, socialized You know capitalism. what they say, if at first you don't succeed, <laughs> just stop. <laughs> just stop. <laughs> yeah, good point. And I think the other thing I was, it just came to my mind was when we were talking about classism and how classism kind of transcends wealth and almost, and I think to your point too, that like you can use classism to, even if you lose all your wealth to help like regain it and you've got a huge leg up as to someone who doesn't have that class. Um, I think about, you know, I have a couple of clients who have immigrated over the years from Russia. Um, and spoiler alert, all the people who move from Russia are not big Putin fans. So yeah, they're, they're, they're wonderful people. Because um, yeah, if you don't like Putin, you don't stay in Russia. Um, but um, a couple of them grew up during the Soviet Union. They said, you know, the thing that you always did is education. Because education, one lady specifically told me this, and she was like, you know, you always educate yourself because the one thing the government could never take away from you was your degrees, right? They could take away your house, they could take away your money, they could seize anything else, but they could never really take away the fact you had a PhD in something or whatever. So she lobotomize you. Right. <laughs> Destroy the records. But I thought that was a really interesting point, that she was like, that was the thing everyone focused on, was trying to get these degrees in this education, because this was this one paper of power that they could have. And I was like, that's almost classism in a way of its own, right? And then they have to redo the paper when they come here. Well, yeah. Uh, so yeah. that's Sorry probably like, it. there's working class, which I I think people will typically view working class as being uneducated. Uh, even if they might have, you know, a trades education or something like that, it's not viewed in the same way as like a, a degree in um, finance, for instance, yeah, right? Traditionally. It, it, it's viewed differently than that. Um, but I wonder if then, there should also be a class related to education, like the education class of people, the working class of people, and then you know, 
low-income, middle-income, uh, high-income. Well, and traditionally in the class system in the UK, you have the working class and what were called the leisure classes. Okay. And the leisure classes were the people who didn't have to work for an income. And that was, I mean, if we go back to the Victorians, that was the, the Victorian ideal. What the, very, the Victorians, especially the upper classes of the Victorian era, very much looked down upon people who had to work for a living. So even doctors, lawyers, people who we would probably consider upper class now, because they still had to work for an income, they were like, you know, semi-members of upper society because they interacted with the upper, but they would never have been considered upper society because upper society doesn't actually work for a living. Mm. And I've always found that to be very, um, a disturbing ideal because... That's almost completely flipped on its head too because if you don't work for a living now, you're viewed as, you know, mooching off of the system yeah. or, or something like that. Only if you're poor. Well, that's true. And, but if you're yeah, wealthy, true. people will say that you work for a living even if you don't because you're making your money work for you. And it's, it's sort of this weird well, idea. Well, at that where point, you, you're not a loser anymore. You're a hero. Well, yeah, it, it, there's, there's a sort of the, this very weird difference in how we view two groups of people that are both not working currently for their money, but one of them has money and the other one doesn't. And so we view one as being good and the other as being bad. Yeah. Absolutely. I may not be as rich as Elon Musk, but at least the entire internet doesn't make fun of me every day. I mean, as trans people, I kind of feel like the entire internet does sometimes, but... <laughs> I mean... It's a terrible joke, but it's true. You're going to bad places. Yeah, we, this, this is not Don't that jump in the volcano and uh, complain you get burned. I, we talked about the monarchy, but do you think that government exists as its own class? Hmm. I, uh, I guess. So we're sort of breaking down the word class to the point where it doesn't mean anything. I mean, yeah, they're a group of people and they have different benefits than other people because of government resources. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I Whatever. think that's... Whatever. What does it matter? It's, it's a good point that, you know, you could, in theory, break it into millions of different segments and go, these are all different classes, and at that point it loses all relevance. Um, like, at the end of the day, what is separating the... The qualities of government workers from the qualities of upper class people. How does that benefit anybody? Well, and that's the question. Mm -hmm. Like, is there really a significant difference between someone who holds, you know, office in government and someone who is wealthy? They both have power, maybe in different ways, but they have power to influence society more broadly. And then you also have a specific branch within the government, the police, who have different rules that are applied to them as well. I... I I think but that's similar also between politicians and the police in terms of like, I think most politicians, there's a different rule of like, of, and standards that they are kind of held to than the rest of us in a way, both good and bad. But this is a podcast about classism, not rules or privilege. Mm. Well, and it's mm -hmm. kind of, we're exploring whether or not the two are sort of combined, because I think it would be a perfectly valid answer to say, no, the government is not its own class, but I also think it would be you know, you could easily argue, yes, but it is But at the end of class. the day, a police officer is, like, still a citizen that has to work every day, and they don't have that classism. They don't have that education or experience just because they're a police officer. Same for a government worker. They don't have that experience. They, it, it's just because they're treated slightly better. That doesn't mean they're higher up on the classism scale. And if they are, it's marginal. Well, and it also comes down to whether or not we think there's overlap between classes, right? Because... If we're saying that you could be low, lower class or middle class, but also be working class, then you could be 
police class and also be working class, if that were the case, right? Maybe. I guess there's like a subset that would maybe have slightly more privilege within the working classes that are the, I get, but actually more to your point um, that you had made earlier, are the politicians really the ones in control? Like the no. real power does not stand with the, no. you know, we'd like to think that the politicians are in control, but truly they are in, they are controlled by the money that funnels their yes. campaigns, that controls controlled their... by board members, and those board members control lobbyists. And... Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I think the real, if we're ta- going to talk about like the real political power classes, the ultimate top of that is not, you know, Justin Trudeau, or it isn't our like ministers of whatever. It would be more the corporations and the, the, the lobby groups and the union groups and whatever, the, the money that's behind those politicians um i hate that i just singled out justin Trudeau. poor guy he always gets slammed so anyhow <laughs> i'm okay with it but <laughs> yeah but i meant all politicians and him yes. being kind of like if you think justin trudeau is an excellent example of classism uh, mm. because he had the experience he, he he was a relatively like not super like wealthy or successful person but because he had that classism he had all of that he was able to become the prime minister instead of just a teacher in poco well, and totally. also that relatable aspect, because being a teacher allows you to connect with a class that you may not actually be part of, because you're sort of working in that environment with people you who are of that class. You don't need to connect with a class that's lower than you, because as a higher class person, you make the shots. You don't need to appeal to anyone. They're just going to do what you want. But you do uh, in order to get their vote, right? Yeah. So in order for that, him to be elected, yeah, he has that, to be able to appeal to the But that's not masses. necessarily the politician's job. That's the campaign manager's job. Uh, perhaps, perhaps. Yeah, but the campaign campaign manager steers a politician and steers that whole thing. But yes, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. In a democracy, you need that, and even in a non-democracy, you need the buy-in of a certain percentage of the population group. Which is why I think if we're kind of come back around to classism, yes. you always had. There's always this instilled idea that you want to aspire to be one of the upper classes because that yes. gives them the power Obviously, to control you. Obviously, um, you don't want to offend the people voting for you, but you're not there because you relate to them. You're there because of classism. Yeah, 100%. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, maybe this is a good time then for me to bring up the question of billionaires because this is something that we talked about before and you'd mentioned to me that you wanted to talk about the extremes of classism. Right. So one of the extremes that you had mentioned was billionaires. Yeah. Um, and... I think that's a really good one. Uh, personally, I think billionaires are the ones who are in control of society, right? They're the ones who have politicians in their pocket. They have so much money that they, they have more power than a lot of countries now. Oh, yeah. So, you know, how, what, what is your view on billionaires? And, you know, is, is that a big problem that needs to be solved? And if so, how does that get solved? It's absolutely a big problem. Even if you ask, um, and I think most people whether you believe in capitalism or not, or you believe in our current economic system or not, if you ask most economists um, whether or not the existence of so many like super billionaires is a healthy thing, it's not. It absolutely isn't because it becomes more of an... E- it's an economic inefficiency is um, how one would describe it um, in the sense that having that much wealth concentrated in one individual... Um, beyond a certain point is is no it's it's no longer economically efficient that you know thinking of ellison um i forget his first name who literally owns a hawaiian island or he owns like 98 percent of the island um and so if you live on that island you either rent from him or you work from him or both um i think the man is worth anywhere between 60 and 70 billion dollars 
for him to lose one billion of his net worth really has no impact on him or, or to gain it. But for us to have a billion dollars towards healthcare spending or towards like education spending, like it's it's massive. And so, yeah, there's that. I also think that politically, I find at least in in where what I work and what I in, in the realm that I work and what I do, I find that often high income earners are un unfairly targeted politically as kind of the scapegoats for all this. Absolutely. They always blame the millionaires. They blame like the celebrities with their sports cars. It's not even real. Yeah. And, um, you know, one frustration I often have is like the sheer amount of, I mean, I'll take it a doctor, for example. I think we can all agree that a well-educated physician is not a, is, is in the upper echelons of income and some of them make an excellent income. But you also have to think they've had to put themselves through medical school for eight or nine years. It's very stressful. The burnout rate is incredibly high and they often graduate with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. And then they're taxed at like a 50, 53% income tax bracket, which is atrocious versus, you know, we have billionaires in this country who are paying probably effectively 10 to 15% income tax, if even almost zero once they have certain ways of organizing things. And I'm like, and I've seen over the last 14 years that I've worked, the income tax brackets on those high income earners has gone up and up from about 45% to now 53%. And I don't really see, and I, and I think that political parties use that as a sale of like, we're going to increase the upper income tax brackets. And I'm like, your problem in society is not the people who work for a living, who are making income to be taxed. That's not really the problem. So tell me, Matthew, is it too late to kill the rich people? <laughs> is it too late? I'm not a big fan of killing anyone, I will say. Um, and... On that point... Because I think they got us. Yeah. I, I think it's very ingrained at this point, and I think, it's, I, think, I think where we're at, you'd have a very difficult time unwinding. I don't really... I feel like we're going to come to a point where something has to break, though. Like, right. um, you see more and more of the world's wealth being held by a small group of people, which leaves less for everyone else. And <laughs> a conservative will argue trickle-down economics, right? You have these wealthy people at the top, but they're spending money and it's trickling down, which might be true for wealthy individuals like doctors, right. lawyers, people who have quite a bit of wealth, but not you know, billionaire level wealth. But when you get to billionaires, you've got people that sure, there's some money that's trickling back down, but a lot of it's just locked away when, that's not accessible to things, anyone. When things break, I don't think it's gonna get better. I think it's gonna be worse. And I think that the solutions that come afterwards will probably be just as bad, if not worse, because of the exploitation that will be capable of following the breaking down of society. Because, I, I mean, how could the breaking down of society make society any better? Because we can just start from scratch. That's not how it works. People always slip in the cracks. They get their paws on things. It's not going to be some utopia. It's just going to be the same as now, only way worse. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. I don't think that a breakdown society is something we're necessarily heading towards, but I do think that um, there's mounting frustration, and I yes. think that it's often used by politicians and parties uh, to be funneled towards the wrong group or the groups that aren't really responsible. Something I've heard a lot of is like um, uh, tax the billionaires or like have this situation where 
you know, you're allowed to have a bit the simple memes you see. Make that? Yeah, the, well, the simple memes that you see on Facebook, for example, of like, okay, once you have a billion dollars, you've won, and anything above a billion dollars, we take it away from you. And I'm like, ah, but the problem is, is it's not actually that simple. So I'm not a huge fan of Elon Elon Musk. I don't like the man at all uh, for many, many, many reasons. Uh, though I've never met him, so I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't say that. Um, but his, uh, his cash isn't as liquid as it seems, as that whole Twitter fiasco has shown us. Exactly. So See, it's, it's complicated. It is. Yes. You can't just be like, okay, Elon, we're taking away all your shares that make you worth over a billion dollars, but you get to keep the yes. billion. It's like, well, no, because then that changes the ownership of Twitter. That changes, well, he doesn't necessarily own Twitter yet, but it changes the ownership of Tesla. It changes all of that. And it's like, and you, our legal system doesn't allow for like the government to just like see yeah. that. One wonders if humanity is just too greedy in general for things to ever work out. But then you see people, I've introduced my husband over the years to the, the wonderful lady who's Dolly Parton, who quite frankly, she should be a billionaire. She should be a multiple billionaire for the amount of money that she makes, but she gives away so much of it that she, Dolly is not hurting. She's doing perfectly fine financially, but she's not extreme wealthy because she like the amount of money that woman spends on like education in the state of Tennessee and on just giving away money. And yeah, she's just a fantastic human being, but you're right. You know, not everyone is that altruistic naturally. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the problem too, is that you have to view it from a global perspective because mm -hmm. if one country goes, yeah, okay. Any billionaire who lives here, we're going to take away all but your last billion dollars. They're just going to say, well, okay, I'll move somewhere else then. And yeah. I'm not usually the person who goes, well, let's not have any restrictions because that's how we're going to attract business to our country. But I think there it definitely is a point where you have to go, is this actually going to work? Because you're not going to actually solve the issue of billionaires if it's only one country that's on board. You have to get the entire world on board with dealing so, with the so issue. This is of why I feel bad for people who don't believe in God, because it's like there are no solutions here. <laughs> <laughs> have you just converted me? <laughs> it's a very interesting conversion angle. I, yeah, I like that. <laughs> what else are you gonna believe in? Yeah, the world's screwed, so believe in something. <laughs> um Coming back to a social justice coloring book, which, like I mentioned before, this podcast is sort of based on, one of the pages in the coloring book is classism, which is why we're doing this podcast on classism. And in that page, the way I had drawn it is uh, royalty at the top with government underneath that, wealthy individuals under that, and then middle class and then lower class. Is that accurate or should it be... I guess what order should it be in? I would almost put like, um, like the corporations, the government, and royalty. Yep. I'm inclined to think that could be a good way to organize it as yes. well. I think it depends yeah, on if the you're... The monochrist over here, though, yeah. has opinions. I think it depends on how you define it, uh, define the classism. Like, do you find it by like pure, obviously we don't define it by pure wealth. If we define it by pure wealth, then the, monarch, the monarchy would actually be very like low on the upper side. Well, yeah, I was defining it by power for the sake yeah. of the Royalty page. is like, it's not even like a class. It's like a family. And it's I an guess, institution. And, and technically, uh, yeah. And then like, so that institution plus, I guess, I don't know. The inst so some of them are wealthy individuals. Some of them are probably just government workers. The, that, that's kind of weird, the royal situation. Well, and when you talk yeah. about wealthy, like the reason I put wealthy underneath government is that most wealthy people can be regulated by the government. 
But when you get to be super wealthy, oh, yeah. then you get to control the government in a lot of ways. So I was really that was the main thing I was really struggling with. The monarchy I kind of put at the top only because I could make it a crown and it looked nice. It wasn't really because <laughs> I thought that was where they should fit. Um, although historically, I think that's where they fit. But it was more that uh, I was trying to figure out where the government and the wealthy fit. And it would seem like there would be ultra wealthy, then government, and then your regular wealthy people, if that makes I, sense. I think if we're defining class by privilege and the ability to do things just solely based on your name or who you were born from and where you were born, then I think the monarchy probably would deserve to be at the top. I mean... A fun fact is that the queen is one of the only individuals on this planet who doesn't need a passport. She doesn't have a passport. That's very fun. She travels without a passport because all passports in the UK are issued by the queen. So she doesn't issue herself a passport. She just travels. with The queen has never had a passport. In terms of like classism and like that, as high as you can go. I don't know if now, but certainly like at the height of their power, being a, a member of the royal family would definitely fall into that category. Yeah. Yes. I'm also impressed by the fact that the queen has the power to travel to places that don't necessarily even recognize the monarchy without a passport. 100%. She, she as long as like, yeah, she, she can technically travel anywhere without a passport. Like, well, she does. She never had, has had a passport because mm -hmm. she is, if you get down into like really how the British constitution is written, like she truly, she is... Britain, if that makes sense. Like, mm -hmm. all the power kind of flows from her and the crown, technically. And, and that's why when people say, like, oh, we should get rid of the monarchy, I'm like, constitutionally and legally, it's incredibly hard. Because even how the Canadian Constitution oh, is written, God. everything, like, Ugh. what's public land? It's crown land. Mm -hmm. It's all technically owned by the queen, but she lets us utilize it as, as her subjects. I Legi mean, Legislation takes long enough on its own trying to dismantle it. you imagine? It, trying to dismantle it. It would take 7,000 years. <laughs> <laughs> That being said, I don't know about the government piece. Be I, I struggle with your idea of having the government even in there because ultimately the government, at least in this country, is represented by uh, both the crown, I guess in a way, in a figurehead sort of fashion, as well as, as politicians that are elected by us. But you know, there's a lot of members of the government. There's a lot of government workers who I would not define as upper class or even possibly middle class, right? Mm -hmm. No. So the reason I think of the government as being its own class is because they have the ability to control what everyone else does. Like, they are the ones who are enacting laws that govern our society. And mm -hmm. to me, that has a different level of power to it than a wealthy individual to, to would put, have. To put more focus on the, the, the topic... Um, you could be born into a wealthy family and then not have that classist upbringing because, you know, either through not correct discipline or you're just a shithead, you know, just for whatever reason, you know, like you could be very wealthy and but not have the benefits of classism as you grow up because you just, you didn't get it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Completely. But I, yeah, so I think going back to your question of like how that pyramid is structured. I guess that, yeah, that would make sense. Um, and I don't yeah. think it really, like, I'm not trying to say whether my page was correct or not, because the idea of the coloring book is just to give people right. the opportunity to sort of think about that and go, do I agree with how this is laid out? Or maybe I think about it in a different way. But I think it's a really interesting conversation to have, because yeah. well, I don't I mean, think people view government as a class. And, and so I think that's an interesting one to talk the, about. The crown and government is certainly symbolic of class struggle. So yes. Mm -hmm. for a, a coloring book, I think it's suitable. 
Yes. Well, thank you. <laughs> we kind of touched on this earlier, but in addition to income, there are people within the workforce who are separated based on those who sell their intellect and those who sell their bodies. And people who sell their bodies are typically considered working class and might fall into sort of that middle income or low income group. Um, but do you believe that is sort of a class in and of itself? And we're kind of, we're, uh, we're doing this a lot where we're breaking well, it down and going, is uh, this? We're almost conflating the word class for culture. And, uh, and maybe that's, it that's the It certainly is a culture. And, uh, um, as far as class goes and, and, the, and the privileges you receive, I mean, probably a little bit less. But it, again, it feels marginal when compared to the true problem of class, which is the wealthy and the not wealthy. And that's really what it is. It's not, it's not like seven different topics. Right. And, and this, is, this is a sort of the reason I have so many questions about this is when I was looking into what class means, some people define it as being three categories, right? That upper, the middle, the lower class. Some people define it as being 12 categories, and I don't even know what those 12 would be. But You could certainly compartmentalize them without being pedantic, but why? For, for, you know, for your purposes of, of dissecting classes, and you think it, it really only matters if you're wealthy or you're not wealthy. Uh, that's a bit reductive. I think I'm more just confused behind the motivation of the question. What are we trying to understand together here? I think we're trying to give the audience an understanding of what classism means from a variety of different perspectives, because I don't think there is a right answer to this, to any of these questions. It's just about how we view it and well, giving uh, other people the opportunity to reflect on how they might A working it. class person is certainly uh, less likely to um, do things that someone with class would do, like, uh, like invest their money. They would be less likely to do that. They would... Uh, be more likely to just spend it at the end of the day with their buddies and drink. And that's the culture of it. Because if you're a working class person, if you're like a blue collar person, you usually, you know, you don't really talk about your assets or your stocks or anything. You're just like, oh, work was shit. Give me smokes. That's, that's life. Mm -hmm. I think, though, that there's an interesting, especially in this country um, and probably a lot of other wealthy Western countries. There's been this interesting movement away from the traditional class structure with certain occupations. And I see this a lot um, with newcomers uh, to Canada who will probably come from a country with a very, you know, if you go to university, you will make more money than a plumber. If you go to university and become a, uh, you know, whatever career you have, uh, as a white-collar worker, you will always be better off than a blue-collar worker. Yes. But then they come here, and, and often I try to provide some, some free advice and some free support. And one of the things that I will say is like, hey, if you want to make a good living and be very comfortable and in demand for your work for like basically the rest of your life. And job and trades? Yeah, I'm like, yes. then get a job in construction, and get a job in a trade. Get highly a ironic, but it's likely due mostly to automation, you know, robots taking our jobs and shit. Uh, and, and especially for the future and just job security, absolutely, job and trades. Yeah, I mean, obviously it depends on the trade. Like I wouldn't necessarily recommend framing because that's pretty, you know, it's hard on your body and you can't do it forever. But being a plumber, an electrician. They're all um, dangerous. The tr electrician's one of the most dangerous yeah. jobs there are. It, the, all of the trades jobs are dangerous, but, but they're, I'll, they're also very worth it. 
I, I mean, mean I, as far as jobs go, they're the, the better ones, I think. But I'll say what's yeah. interesting is that, like, your average electrician coming out of BCIT straight into working in, as an electrician makes more money than your average lawyer coming out of law school articling. So absolutely. My dad would get really frustrated because I had uh, teachers at BCIT because I mean, I work in construction, right? right? Um, So I went to BCIT. I I had teachers there that were earning far more than my dad was making. And he has a PhD, right? right? He's teaching with a doctorate and he's making significantly less than these teachers who have a two-year diploma and worked in the trades for a little. Some of my wealthiest clients are trades people in you know langley who started a plumbing company and now they have like 30 40 plumbers working underneath them and have this big company and whatever and that's that we would still define as blue collar we would still define that as working class we would still define that on kind of like in those elements but they're very well off financially Mm -hmm. yeah and that's sort of why i was mentioning previously about that working class kind of group of people would also intersect with both lower and and an an interesting uh demonstration of classism in action is that that person's children would be much more likely to start their own business than uh, that other person's like brothers or sisters would have been Mm -hmm. totally and i think it's also interesting too that um you know you compare that compare that um you know picture the average person you're thinking about in terms of this electrician person in their like 40s or 50s compared that to maybe a human rights lawyer who's dedicated their their life to this intellectual very uh, honorable pursuit i can guarantee you that probably the electrician with a company is, is financially way better off and way wealthier I mean, depending on, i mean we're making a lot of assumptions here but just bear with me here but I think in terms of privilege and in terms of respect, if you're going to like, you know, certain cocktail parties or whatever, one would definitely get more respect because of the class and the job that they have, even though they're not necessarily wealthier. You are absolutely yeah. right about right? that. Because it's I know quite a few human rights lawyers who don't have a lot of money, but who command a ton of respect. Right. And also as someone who works in a variety of different industries, I get a lot more respect in every other industry than when I work in construction. Right. When I'm working in construction, that's when I get the least amount of respect for what I do. Yeah. That's yeah. that sexism, baby. Mm-hmm. Oh, I yeah. I mean, although interestingly, I get more respect now being a woman in the trades than I did being a man in the trades because it's sort of viewed as overcoming societal expectations. Because you're neat, you're interesting. Some, yeah, something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Or they respect the struggle, maybe. It, depending the on who you talk struggle. to. Yeah, I mean, I think men in the construction industry just view you as, you know, oh, that's interesting that a woman's doing this. It, it, there's not a, a respect from it. But women who work with me will definitely respect what I do. I and I says, respect other women I think in the that trades. says more about women, though. That's about anything else. It, well, I think it speaks to historical oppression of women and the fact that women haven't, that hasn't been viewed as a, an industry that women get involved in. And I think a lot of people misunderstand how difficult construction work actually is. And they think, you know, it's, it's, it's all heavy lifting. It's all skills that are really difficult to learn. Why would anyone think that's easy? <laughs> that's ridiculous. <laughs> that construction is easy? Yeah, like, like all that heavy lifting and stuff. Like, why would you think that's easy to do? It's no, no, no. I'm, sa- I'm saying that's not what construction I, necessarily is. There's a lot of, a lot of aspects of construction, depending on what you do. Yeah. There's a lot of 
aspects of construction that don't require heavy lifting is more finishing at, uh, or like plumbing and electrical typically it's more about reaching into tight spaces than it is about lifting heavy things some people just vacuum some people just vac. i mean my job was just sweeping for a couple years um but there's this perceived barrier right. that women face to, to getting into construction and so they view it as being oh wow you're a woman doing construction that's incredible it's not really that incredible it's just viewed that way because what historically they, there haven't been many of us that have What done if she that. was like doing rebar? I mean, I'd be impressed. Oh, I mean, like, I will be impressed by specific skill sets, mm -hmm. um, but not necessarily because it was a woman that did it, just because that's an impressive thing Actually, for a yeah, person an, to anybody do. Anybody doing rebar is impressive. <laughs> right. Um, I, I feel that way about custom cabinetry. I think it's so impressive when you can... Oddly specific. I well, like it. it's such a... It's like, it's, I like custom cabinets. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like someone who makes furniture, right? I, I can build things. I built this, this desk that we're sitting in front of. You don't want to see it without the tablecloth on, right? <laughs> I want to see a little bit. Yeah. Um, it, it's not a nice-looking piece of furniture, and obviously it wasn't intended to be. But I don't have the skills to make it look super nice. Why and so I'm impressed when people have the skills to be able to do that. I think at that point it starts to verge into, and we're really off topic, but I think at yeah, that, at that point it starts to like verge into artistry. Because mm -hmm. then that's going into like you look at the pieces of, of woodworking where they're like hand carved. And like, yes, technically that person does woodworking the same as somebody who builds, I don't know, like a table like this. But it's... It's, it's a whole different level, yeah. right? And it's the tolerances, like yeah. the eye for detail, the ability mm -hmm. to make sure your saw comes down right on that perfect line. It's not a millimeter off. Totally. Whereas when you're doing framing, you know, right. an eighth it's, of an inch, a quarter of an inch, no big deal. Yeah, fine. you're just slopping it out. So your right. house is crooked. Well, it's, the tolerances are, don't need to be so fine because you're, you're slapping drywall on it, you're putting mud on it. There's so many things that could change. Unless your house is really long. Then you're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> that being said, as someone who is like, I'm very finicky about like measuring things and I've done this before. I don't think I've ever lived in a in a condo, in a home or whatever, where like anything was a true 90 degree angle. No. Nothing ever is. And Nothing's even if it is perfectly. at the beginning and this place yeah. is going to settle, it's going to be out. Yeah. yeah. The more you learn about it, the more you see all the mistakes everywhere. Totally. Yeah. Moving back to yeah, the anyhow, topic. Back to topic. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this... I, I didn't think about asking this question personally, but it was a common question that people seem to ask about classism, which is, does it affect your ability to have relationships? Have you ever viewed class as affecting your ability to have a relationship, whether it's romantic or, you know, friend or... or yes, I've, I've uh, started relationships with people without realizing that they, like, come from a wealthy family, and, like, and then, like, you're like, oh, oh, I probably... Uh, have to like you know not swear and not show my tattoos and not like uh, smoke in front of them you know it's like there's like a but then because uh because my mom did such a good job raising me i was actually able to appeal to that person to begin with and they thought that i was part of their class so you've been able to use class to your advantage in order to maintain relationships certainly um i mean not as consciously as I'd like to admit. It was definitely all just sort of happening to me because I was privileged and lucky, but yes. Interesting. Do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I've ever come into a situation where it's been like a complete hindrance to a romantic or even a personal relationship, but I will say it's definitely helped in terms of professional relationships. Um, you know, by virtue of how I grew up and what schools I went to, 
I know how to how to behave, how to act, how to say things, how to even pronounce things in such a way as to Im- imbue that upon someone who cares about that. Uh, that being said, I mean, my family in Saskatchewan, like, like I'm not going to lie, are very, very low-income, working-class, like, redneck sort of family. That is the family I'm genetically from, but that's not who, how I was raised and who I grew up with. But, I mean, I have, I have British clients um, in a suburb of Vancouver uh, who, you know, that very much does matter. I actually specifically remember... It's not even just necessarily mannerism, it's its names. Um, my before marriage name is Bowyer, which is a very old English name. My, so my, my, my legal name was Matthew Kent Bowyer, which is an extremely British, extremely, yeah, extremely British name. And I remember I literally sat down with a prospective new client who was quite wealthy, and she's originally from Britain. That was the first thing she said. She was like, oh, I love yours. She's like, it's a good British name. And that was the first thing she said. And guarantee you that helped me in the door with her right Mm -hmm. just the fact that that was my name and that was on my business card when we booked the meeting so um and your husband was actually quite surprised that you changed your name wasn't he (laughs) yes he was uh because i didn't tell him in advance before our our wedding that i was doing this the only person who knew was our our pastor uh yeah um beth who's an absolutely lovely lady um yeah i don't I'm not thinking, I don't know if she goes by the term pastor or how she likes to, spiritual leader. Um, but she, uh, she was the only one who knew. So when the marriage certificate was all being signed and whatnot, or, and then after you signed the marriage certificate, she then represented us both as both Danny and Matthew Ramadan. And he kind of gave me a look and I was like, oh, yeah, I've decided to change my last name to Ramadan. And he was like, he, and he, I mean, again, as a wonderful human being, but he was kind of like, why would you do that? Like, why would you give up a British last name to have the last name Ramadan? I was literally talking about how much I liked the name Ramadan before yeah. you came here. But I mean, I, I I don't have a passport yet under the name Ramadan because I'm waiting for the Canadian government to issue passports and it's taking like five months to get passports issued. Oh, and yeah. That's a very frustration thing. But um, I will tell you, it's 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 already been interesting, like waiting at the doctor's office or waiting at a clinic and they'd be like, Mr. Ramadan? And I stand up and they're like, no, no, Ramadan. Oh and I was God. like, yep, that's me. I'm white. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, and I think maybe that's part of why I did it. I mostly did it because, and coming down to, to traditions, I do come from a very traditional family where last names ought to match. And that was something that was very important to me that we are forming our own household together we are now this household and i wouldn't expect him for many reasons to change his last name to bowyer and um from both a classism and colonialism lens but also from a like you know he's already published he already has his name out there and i was like mm-hmm. it's much easier for me to change my last name um but it was interesting there was a couple of clients that i got some not flack from but i got some interesting like responses from some clients being like oh that's interesting i even had a client ask me if i was converting to islam (laughs) and i was like well considering my husband is a gay man and not necessarily a practicing muslim i don't think that's happening but (laughs) not sure (laughs) yeah um that was very interesting but uh yeah and i also i love the last name i think it's an interesting juxtaposition to have like such a british first and middle name then have such like an arab last name i like it I'm mm-hmm. taking my partner's last name, which is Bellette. So I'm going to be French now. I'm oh, yay. there you go. Uh, <laughs> 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 Perfect. 
perfect French. <laughs> now you have to learn French and I have to learn Arabic. Yeah. Oh, are you going to learn Arabic? I really want you to. You really should is, have already. It's such a You've hard language. You've been to language. Egypt, haven't you? I grew you up should, in the Middle East. You should know Arabic. So I, the, I, talking about privilege again. So the British <laughs> private school I went to in the Middle East, we had to learn, it was mandatory we had three languages. Our primary, which was English, and then I had to take French and Ger I chose German as my third. Didn't even have to take Arabic. No, we did not have to take Arabic, the local language of the land that we were literally living on. It was totally elective. And I did it for about a year and a half, and I was just like, this is too hard, and I dropped right out. So I know very basic, basic Arabic, but it's, it's a very hard language. Really? Yeah, it's completely... If you look, there's a there's a table you can look up of like if my native language is this, what are the easiest and hardest languages to learn? Mm -hmm. And if your native language is English, like the three hardest languages to learn are like Japanese, Arabic, and something else. I can't remember. And I'm it's Chinese probably because they're just so structurally different. They're mm -hmm. completely different in like just a lot of the ways that we do things. It's very different in Arabic. Is classism a problem? And if so, how does it get solved? It seems to me that we've established that it is a problem um, because it's creating this disparity either in wealth or in power. Isn't it more of a symptom? Well, so the, the, the other question comes back to we've created a system of, of capitalism and of royalty and all of these things, which is all based off of hierarchy. And I don't know of another system that isn't based off of hierarchy. So... Is it even possible to have a world that is not classist? Well, you know, the, the allegory of the cave mm -hmm. and the, the silhouettes and the fire and whatnot, you know. I think the moment you have a large group of human beings together in any sort of organized environment, you end up with a classist, like, or, like, or with a class structure. Like, i thinking of when you were talking about... Isolated, like, tribes that have all done that. Right. Like, is it, that the case? Do we know that? If isolated tribes have done that? Do they? We need an anthropologist to yes. tell us. Yeah, uh, we do. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't be able to. I, none of us could be, be able to speak to every you know, tribe in the world. Definitely, Our though, can only take us so far. Like, but I, I think, like, I, I instinctively think of just because some brought it up earlier, and uh, you know, we're talking about class through a very white Anglo-Saxon sort of lens of like the three classes. But like, you look at India and the caste system which is even stricter in terms of like once you're born into a caste, it is basically impossible to leave that caste. And that defines the jobs you do. That defines like what you're allowed, like who you're allowed to interact with, who's above you, who's below you. That system existed hundreds, if not thousands of years before any Europeans arrived. But, so I think that... But uh, society also existed before the caste system. True. Mm -hmm. True. But like you look at the Japanese uh, royal system as well. There's a very strong caste system in Japan as well. You fall into that whole like people leading other people thing. Or you go back like in history, even within white culture to Roman yeah. society. Yeah, Romans had a strong caste system or sorry, class system. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I do think it's an economic inefficiency just to get like super nerdy for a second. Um, it's an absolute economic inefficiency because someone who is born, <clears throat> I'm thinking of someone who, I don't know, grows up in a in a minority you know uh, very poor maybe they're they're of um uh maybe they're blacker and they have they're in a poor environment and whatnot they don't have access to a great education system as a result of this um and they've got multiple things kind of going against them 
you know, they might be an absolutely brilliant mind at a certain thing, but because they have all this class working against them, they will have a hard time being truly able to flourish in the career that, and in the role in society that they ought to have had, which would benefit all of us. So it's an economic but inefficiency that way. Also, like, due to, like, the highly made-up nature of classes, that same person could also learn to fit into that class. That's part yeah. of the reason it's so interesting, because it's, it's, it's more social than it is based on any actual reality. But also in our society, in our society, specifically in Canada and North America, that person would have the upward mobility, though it would be hard, they would have that upward mobility. That's not necessarily true of all countries around the world. There are, there are places in the world where they wouldn't, even quite frankly, England, I think they would have a much harder time in England because they would have a certain accent, they would have a certain college but, they went to but like um prejudice aside mm. i don't think there's any society where being in a higher class doesn't benefit you yeah right that is always a good thing i, th I think there's totally. also a big push from some folks towards communism and socialism as being the escape from the capitalist society from a classist society but it's not really in a lot of ways because it might redistribute wealth in a way that is more equitable, perhaps, but you're still going to have the classist components because you still have someone at the top or a group of people at the top that are figuring out how the money gets distributed. I'm not sure if we're qualified to figure out if communism's the right answer. <laughs> no, 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 that's, that's not what this is. <laughs> but, but you're absolutely right because even in communism, you had like, yes, we're all you know comrades under the same whatever in communism, but you'd still had the political elites. You still had... You know, if you were born to the right family and the right you know, inner member of the party, then you automatically were going to have a better role within that structure, even though we're all equal. Some are more equal than and, others. And people right. say the same. <laughs> it's the same buzzwords for democracy. Everyone's supposed to be equal on that, too. Everyone's supposed to have a say. No one does. One, I've stopped talking about equality for the most part and started talking about equity because right. equality does not mean equity in most situations. Totally. They are different words. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you work as a financial planner. We've sort of talked about this and established that. Do you feel that your work contributes to classism or helps to bridge gaps between classes? Oh, that's a very interesting question. <laughs> I'm going to answer that with such a non-answer. No, um, yes and no. Um, by virtue, and I sometimes have this conversation with my husband because it's, it's unhealthy to compare yourself to others, but we all do it. We're all human. And sometimes I beat up myself a little bit because I'm like, oh, you know, I'm dealing with this client that's like younger than me and they've done so much. And like, oh, I need to be like, I hate those people. I need to have done more. I need to have blah, blah, blah. And he's often the one to be like, yeah, but you do not deal with the average Canadian. Like your clientele is not representative of the average Canadian household. And I'm like, yeah, that's very true. Um, so yes, in a way, because by virtue of me providing my knowledge, my skill set, my advice, you know, strategies, concepts to these clients that they're paying me for, they often are saving money on tax, they're often doing things in a more efficient manner, they're often going to be better off or able to retire earlier. Um, and the majority of them are middle class, but I mean, there's a whole class or wealth group of people who like just wouldn't be able to afford to hire me um and so by virtue they don't have access to that so 
I can see how it magnifies in that sense. On the flip side, I often deal with people who are from a quote-unquote lower class background, like the example of the plumber um, who maybe grew up in a very poor working class family, now has money and has success, and I'm providing them with like strategies and, and supports that they wouldn't be aware of otherwise. So though they're a member of a different class, I'm helping them in a wealth way. I, I don't know. It's, I could see how it definitely, my work can magnify the issue. But I think I'm also magnifying, to, just to get back to the billionaires thing, I think I'm magnifying the issue on such the, a small subset of the issue. Like, I'm not the one advising Elon Musk on where to work, where to, what Cayman Island to move his money to. You know what I mean? Like, the real issue in society is that upper, upper, upper echelon of, of power and wealth. And I'm just helping, like, you know, the, the little guy who has a little bit of wealth get a little bit wealthier. You We're know what I mean? We're all just a cog in the system. Yeah. No matter who you are. I'm just helping some of the cogs be a little bit better off. I'm not really... <laughs> Helping the machine, uh, as it were. Um, so is that... But yeah, technically, yes, I guess, yeah. Is that like, um, if you view your, your work in that way as kind of adding wealth to potentially already wealthy individuals, but not I'd say dealing comfortable. with the extremes. Yeah. Managing Bill Gates, though. And even if right. you were, I wouldn't blame you for making Bill Gates rich. I would, well, so that's that's the question. It's literally is, my job. <laughs> but like, so he could like he doesn't have to keep the money. It's not like it's your money that it's like you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and quite frankly, I wouldn't be qualified or know what to like advise Bill Gates on the subset that I work in. It sounds is, like a hard job. Yeah, that would not be my uh, that would not be my skill set for sure. Probably many people have to do that job. Yeah. <laughs> but that being said, like yeah, I definitely work with like I work with the working you know wealthier the working well off I would say right. And so for you, is that something that you go, okay, I'm not contributing to the extremes that are causing the real issues, and therefore I'm sort of able to justify my work? Or do you have to work through ethical dilemmas when it comes to that? Like, do you have to reconcile anything? I rarely have any ethical... The only ethical dilemmas I've ever had, and they haven't really been a dilemma, is, like, I've had one or two situations where, like, I've suspected some illegal activity, and that's been reported pretty darn quick, uh, and I've had no qualms about that. Um, but also it's legally required of me in my position and my license. Right. Um, but other than that, I've had no ethical qualms because I'm off, quite frankly, helping people who work hard for their money to make their money work even better. That's, that's really what I'm doing, and I feel great about doing that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, obviously, it's like, from the outside, it's like, oh, you work with money, money bad, but no, you're just a person. <laughs> you're not right. responsible for capitalism. Working within the system that may be flawed in and of itself. It's, it's, not even, it's not even that deep. It's just, that's just your job. Fair enough. And there's a lot of times, I will say, too, like some of the strategies, sometimes we work with like really fantastic human beings who are just like, you know, I really want to give to this charity. How do I like magnify my impact to this charity? Or I really want to be like ethically invested. How do I make sure that like all my investments are really ethical? And how do we put that screen through, right? Like, yeah. I'm, I feel I'm like there's yeah. doing some better for the world, too. I'm always apprehensive to make the, the little guy uh, liable or anything that has to do with like, a, well, I mean, you know, it's 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 not not any small person's fault. It's the billionaire, obviously. 
No, but what, I, what I'm hearing is that some of your clients do have sort of ethical dilemmas that they're trying to reconcile, mm. like in the, in the sense that if you're donating to charity, you recognize that you have more money than you need and that someone else could use that. And that, I, I would imagine, probably comes from a sense of, you know, there, there's, that, there's a level your, that's sort of too much for me to, to uh, you know, uh, uh, maybe too much wealth um, that I'm not comfortable with and I want to redistribute it to other people and... Um, but that's not your ethical dilemma to have. That's, well, I'm that's not, your clients. I'm, and I'm not saying that you should have that dilemma. I, I was just more curious if it's something that comes up for you since I know that it comes up for other people. Um, for me, for instance, if I'm earning more than a certain amount of money, I don't think that I, I, like, I don't feel justified in bringing it in. And maybe I shouldn't feel that way. Maybe if me, son, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, well, I do not have that qualm whatsoever. Yeah, right. I really don't. Unless I like until I hit the billionaire status, I have Literally. no qualm on making an extra dollar. <laughs> right. And I, I really think we don't. all have like a different level that we go, okay, that's too much or or you know, I have trouble reconciling this in my own mind. It doesn't right. mean that I think someone else is a bad person because they don't have that issue or or that they draw the line in a different place. It's just sort of curious to know how other people view that because I know how I view it, but I I'm interested to see how other people so do. I think the so only selfless. the only thing I will say to that, Definitely. it's not something I feel like a moral obligation or a necessity to do, but it's something I like to do mm-hmm. is, you know, through contacts that I have through my husband, um, I do often help advise a lot of newcomers and I'm obviously not charging them anything. It's completely pro bono. It's completely free work. And I'm lucky enough to be now in a financial position where I can afford to give my time away for free. Um, but I feel the need to because I just feel like we're so... There is such a level of privilege to have been born in Canada, raised in Canada, and even just be aware of the Canadian systems from birth, whether or not they've worked for you or against you, um, versus a newcomer who comes who maybe has never interacted with income. Like, I had a situation where somebody literally came to me thinking their employer was stealing from them. And I was like, oh, my God. I'm like, let's walk this through. And I was like, no, that's income tax. (laughs) There's money coming off your paycheck because that's income tax. Is that... That would happen to me. Right. You just I've don't never, know. I've just never been in that scenario before. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, it was, it was, it was so much education on so many things that we just take for granted. We know like explaining CPP, how OAS works, how EI works, how all of these systems work. They have no concept. And then you just, just helping putting them on like a bit of a level playing field as the rest of Canadians so that they can you know, navigate the financial system. Navigating like, like how does credit work? I've never worked in debt, but just even like the basis of like, how does credit work? How do you All want to build a credit score? All of these things apply to me. I don't know what any of right. those acronyms you just said are. I, I don't, I do not. Because you've been excluded from that yes. system. Yes. I, I just, I've had no reason to learn. I've had no ability to have any exposure. Yeah. And so to me, like that sounds like you're bridging gaps between classes. So coming yeah. back to that question, you know, you're creating opportunities for people who may not be you know, in a wealthy enough class to be able to access your services generally, but you're giving them the tools to be able to sort of work their way up from, from that class. And also being careful with the word class in this environment, because some of these people come from, they were, they absolutely were maybe middle or even upper class back in their country that they were raised in, yep. and now coming to Canada, and that can also be, a, you know, quite a hard you know, kick in the teeth, is that then they all of a sudden find themselves not in that same that's, class. That's mm-hmm. something that I've noticed the whole podcast. It's very intersectional, very much. Mm. Yeah, I think that's kind of the, the entire podcast and all of the issues that we discuss are so much intersection um, because our, we're also doing a podcast on wealth and equity, and that is one of the most 
sort of intersecting issues with, with classism, I think. This is maybe a really weird example. It's the first one that came to my mind is even if you think, like, if you think of like an ant colony, I'm not advising the queen. I'm advising the ants. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, I, in the grand scheme of things, is one of those ants is slightly better off and leaves a and slightly better life. You know, to really look at that harder, what are you going to do? You're going to cancel the queen? Like, what, why? What, what is going on? <laughs> like, like, so, like, what is the solution? To all exactly. Of this? Like, it's like so much hullabaloo over nothing. And then nobody does anything. And like, mm -hmm. the people who should be held accountable aren't held accountable. And nothing changes. And we're all eating each other. Well, and I think that comes back to the question around, like, if classism is a problem, what do we do about it? And I don't, I didn't really hear a solid answer from either there, because there is really there isn't, isn't one that, I mean, I, I don't think there's one. I think it's absolutely, it's a problem. It's an inefficiency and it, like, it doesn't allow a lot of human beings to reach their true potential. And it allows some human well, beings who really yeah. shouldn't be in positions of power well, to be there. Here's the thing. Even if you did invent the thing from Star Trek that just magically materializes food for you, some fucking rich guy would just kill the person who invented it. It's not happening. It's not. The replicator. Mm, the replicator. <laughs> That's awesome that I'm you know that. big Star Trek nerd. <laughs> That's cool. So you're speaking my language. Perfect. Um, <laughs> We'll have a Star Trek yeah. reference because we had a Star Wars reference in our first podcast. Oh. So we'll Star Wars is just out. a rip off of Isaac Asimov. But anyhow. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that like, it, I don't know what the solution would be. Because we've even talked about like, oh, it's just taxability. It's just yeah. like, it's so hard to actually implement yeah. that. And there's all this discourse on, on, uh, on, on Facebook and it's like, we're, we're stressing out over this and we're never going to come up with a solution. And it's like, well, feels weird to stop talking about it. Yeah. I will say, I do think Canada does a better job than a lot of other like G20 or G10, like wealthiest countries in the world, if, especially if it compares to like the UK or the US. And I think it's the power of our very longstanding, fairly reputable, ingrained institutions, if you think about it. Like we have fairly good funding for our institutions. There's a lot of issues for sure, but like, and for all the, the problems of the world and uh, everything popping up and everything, you know, there is also progress and there's hope. And, you know, not everything is terrible, but I certainly don't think there is a current solution to, uh, to capitalism. I'm, I'm certainly not one that I can come up with. Mm -hmm. Maybe one of those brilliant minds out there, but probably not because they think they would have by now. But, but then again, maybe they did, but then they were killed. <laughs> <laughs> Killing going on. A lot on of killing over today. That <laughs> That's side life. of the table. I'm, I'm sorry. I just came here to speak facts. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I guess I should uh, ask you some direct questions now. I didn't do it. I think I know how you're going to answer this question. But um, do you feel that being trans and a woman places you in a different class? Uh. Again, I feel like we're conflating class with privilege because, I mean, it's just, it's just not quite the right word. It, you know, it's just, mm -hmm. it like creates a glitch in my brain. It's like, it's just not really applicable. Right. You're like this. Th yes, there there's is. There's a difference because of this, but it's not a class. I have difference. already said that there is intersectionality. And, right. Uh, I obviously experience a discrimination because I am trans and because I am a woman. And that's that. Hmm. Uh, and are you able to 
provide some examples of ways that classism has affected your life, either in positive or negative ways? You know, my, my, I was raised to have the behaviors and mannerisms of someone of a higher class. And so it was never really something I did like as a, like a, a, as a conscious action. Like that's just, it's just sort of more who I am. Like how could I know how, how I'm being treated differently if I've never been any different? Uh, but I am certainly aware that I have privilege. So you're aware that classism is affecting your life, but not necessarily um, the, the ways like that I can I can certainly think of ways that I've been treated differently, like, you know, before I transitioned. Uh, but, I mean, I've always had class. I've always had class, baby. And I guess you know, that's where like, that intersection mud yeah. muddies the water, because you're not sure uh, if you're being treated differently because of class or because of gender, or because of... I know I have been, mm -hmm. but, I mean, especially, like, you're trying to, like, have me come up with an example from the top of my head. I didn't prepare for this. Well, no, I'm not necessarily... I mean, yes, I am asking for examples, but um, I think it's an interesting point that, you know, the, the water sort of gets muddied when you're talking about this, because if you're trying to think of an example of, of a way that you were treated differently, you don't necessarily know why you were treated differently. Was the person who treated you differently in their mind thinking, you know, I'm looking down at this person because they're of a different class or because they're of a different gender or because they're you know, gay or, or whatever. It I might also be, right? struggle to remember what I ate for breakfast. <laughs> so there is that. Fair enough. That is sort of wraps up the the questions that I had for today. What a terrible way to wrap well, this up. I'm not gonna end it quite there. <laughs> I wanted to ask if either of you have some specific comments related to classism that you feel you haven't had the opportunity to share yet. Um how do you feel? Huh? How do I feel? You've been asking us questions. How do you feel, huh? Um, how do I feel about classism in general? Um, that's a good question. Put right? me on the spot it, as well. How does it yeah. feel, huh? Does it feel good? There's <laughs> <laughs> a bit of a revolt happening um, all of a sudden over here. Apparently. No, I'll give my thoughts on classism. Um, I think that classism is a problem. I don't know if it can be addressed because I d I'm not aware of another system we could put in place that wouldn't also have aspects of classism associated with it. I also think that in order to address an issue like classism or wealth inequity, uh, anything along those lines, it has to be done at a global level because if you're pick picking a specific region and, and targeting that region, it's going to have effects that might be unintended, such as if you tax the billionaires in one country, they're all just going to go to a different country and um, you're not necessarily solving the problem. It seems that classism is terminal and all we can do is dull the pain. We're not going to be rid of it. But to be fair, what you're also describing is wealth. It's not necessarily like entirely classism. Like I think of classism more as like, like how well, individuals well, interact with each other. Here's interesting. If there was a, uh, this is a theoretical tribe, hypothetical. If there was a tribe, they would have a chief and that chief would have a family and that family would theoretically be treated better than the rest of the tribe. And so even without wealth, there is still a class system. Right, yeah. exactly. So the, the reason I view wealth uh, as being part of class is specifically because we live in a capitalist system right. where wealth equates to power. So ultimately, the way I view class is as a power structure. And the more power you have, the higher class you are, essentially. That's, in my mind, how I view class. Uh, but wealth plays into that quite significantly and I would usually 
bunch middle class and lower income people all together in one group because I don't think that that group has a ton of power. And then I would have very wealthy individuals, government and, and maybe royalty as sort of the, the more power holding group. I think you have to be careful about lumping lower and middle class individuals together because there's, there can be very different uh, societal groups, ways of interacting. Uh, yeah, I think, I think those groups are more different. Um, but you know, even if we were to take wealth out of it and just speak about class, like, I think it's sadly just kind of human nature. Yes. And I, one example I think of, which has always upset me um, and always really bothered me because it's like, you know, we should all be united rather than infighting. But you see that is even within the queer community, right? Think of the rainbow. And I think if you think of <clears throat> the queer community and you think of, you know, class structures within the queer community, which has nothing to do with money, mm -hmm. there is definitely individuals in the queer community that have more access and power just due to who they are and where they are within that rainbow versus others. Now, maybe historically that was worse and it's, it's, it's somewhat getting better, but I still think that, like, you know, if you're a... You're just putting an example out there. If you're a, a brown trans woman, you do not have the same class power as a white cisgendered gay guy who is like a muscle head. Like, you do not. Mm -hmm. Like, and that has nothing to do with money. No, no, absolutely. And when I'm breaking it into two categories, like, you know, this group has power and this group doesn't have power, that is a very simplistic yeah. way of looking at it. And it's why I had so many questions around, does this, do you view this as a class? Do you view that well, as a also, class? I, queer people and queer activity is more acceptable if you're from a higher class. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. And that used to be a very pervasive thing. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yes. And almost considered like artsy and nouveau yes. and like, oh, they're cool. just eccentric. Yes. I, I, yeah. And I think to an extent, yes. But at the same time, weirdly or not weirdly, it's low income people that were the most accepting of me when I transitioned. Hmm. Well, well, all of our experiences well, are different. Well, uh, the way that people treat you and the way that, like, you're generally perceived is, is different. Just because they, they, like, oh, it's okay if the rich, eccentric people are uh, queer, it doesn't mean they respect them or would treat them with any kindness if they were actually with them. Gotcha. So there's that distinction. It, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's just that weird intersectionality of classism where you can do more things. Yes. I think I also think of it through a historical lens, too. Like, think of, um, shoot, what's his name? What's his Frank. name? I'm not good with poet names. No. Ivy, you know a poet name? <laughs> Thank you. Oscar Wilde. Yes, that's exactly it. Of course it. it's Oscar Wilde. <laughs> yeah, so if you think of, like, even if you think of Oscar Wilde as, like, an obviously eccentric, obviously queer, obviously gay man, he was in Victorian you know, Britain, which was a very classist, very rigid, very like, we don't like to have fun sort of era. He was allowed to be basically who he was because he was from an upper class family, because he was a, an artist. He had, he had lots of friends in the upper class. If he had been that same personality, but had come from like a dockyard worker family yes. in like Manchester. They would have beat it out of him. That would have not been the same experience for that man. And mm -hmm. so like... Yeah, absolutely. Class affords you a lot of, of flexibility and freedom to be who you are. Absolutely. For sure. But, you know, I, I don't know if that's as prevalent in the modern era. It probably is.
Yeah, I mean, I came into this discussion thinking I had some idea of what classism was, and I'm leaving the discussion well, not really sure what classism even is anymore. It's that Dunning-Kruger <laughs> effect. <laughs> yeah. Gets you every time. But I think it was really good in, in the sense that the reason I'm questioning what classism is is because you've both brought up such interesting points throughout this conversation. It's made me question the way I view classism, what classism actually means, all of the different intersections that could be classism or could be a completely different issue that's intersecting with class. Do you go to those islands in Dubai? They didn't exist when I lived there. You mean like the palm? Like yeah. The, the, in the world. Oh, in the world, yeah. yeah. Um, they didn't exist when I, when I, we moved back in 2001. They so in 2002, didn't they? I think they were, yeah. And like even the indoor ski hill that was built at the mall, that was finished like just before we left. So we never had a chance to experience it. The country has changed a ton since we left. I watched a time lapse yesterday, actually, of all the developments. I always like to say we kind of lived in Dubai before it was cool because we moved there oh. in the late 80s and then we moved back in 2001. What do you think about Egypt's new capital that they're building? Oh, like New Cairo? Yes. We drove through it. Really? It's very interesting. It's actually kind of sad and depressing because uh, old Cairo, or Cairo, yeah. if you're in the old area of like, for example, Zamalek, Zamalek is traditionally a very, very wealthy upper class area of Cairo, where a lot, that's where the Canadian embassy is, that's where all the British embassies are, that's where all the embassies are. Um, it's kind of falling into disrepair because anyone who's wealthy who owned a place there, a lot of them are moving out to New Cairo because they want to be in the brand new, they want to be in like the, the clean streets, there's no poverty, there's no smog. It's, it's, and so you're seeing that like, um, it's like the hollowing out that happened to Detroit is kind of starting to happen to Cairo. And it's really sad because some of these buildings that are kind of like falling into disrepair are like hundreds of years old and they're beautiful and you can just see the architecture to them. But yeah, a lot of the wealthy are leaving downtown Cairo, and it's kind of sad. Was to it see. crowded in Cairo? Pardon me. Was it crowded? It's extremely crowded. Yeah. It's yeah. like, oh yeah. But again, where class and privilege works is being a tall white guy. If I asked for space, or if I looked like I wanted space, it was absolutely given to me. But then that being said, I have like random school children come up to me and take photos with me that I didn't even want yeah. right like without question <laughs> without anything we had at one point my friend who's swiss came and joined us and she's beautiful red hair uh and then not covering it up and mm. she had like random people touching her hair she had random people like just like yeah it was very uh i know enough arabic to know when men in the souk are talking shit about you and that was happening a couple of times where i'd be like okay we're gonna start walking because i know what some of these swear words are that people are with like, they're just yelling. Shopkeepers are yelling at each other about her. Um, yeah, it's very... It's so there's a privilege in the sense that she could walk into the nicest hotel there and ask to use the bathroom and they wouldn't even bat an eye. You didn't have to cover your hair. <clears throat> if you're a foreigner, you don't. But you stand out, absolutely. So, and And if you're going into a mosque, if you're going into certain spaces, you absolutely cover your hair. Um, but... Uh, uh, yeah, there were definitely situations where I said to Laura, I was like, I know you don't want to, but it might be a good idea to just cover the hair right now. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. So, like, segregation and gentrification are becoming issues then with the sort of separation of new and old Cairo? I mean, they always have been. In, like, the Middle East, mm -hmm. segregation and gentrification has always been a bit of an issue, but it's, it's definitely becoming a, a big issue in Cairo, which is sad to see because it's such a cool city. It's a... Uh, it's one of those places where... Well, I was hoping that uh, it would improve the situation just because their infrastructure is just, you know, 
was too much stuff going on. But that's why a lot of the wealthy who can afford are moving to New Cairo because then they have better infrastructure, they have cleaner streets. So they're they just have... gonna they're not even gonna bother to fix the old one. No. What's no. gonna happen is all the poor yeah. people will be left behind exactly. in just, old Cairo yes. and then probably they won't do much to old Cairo because none of the wealthy live there anymore. And New Cairo will be will be the place that's maintained and and whatnot. And if you need, you know, janitorial workers, you just bust them in. That's really what's going to happen, just to be completely honest about it. It's kind of the way Vancouver's going with the house crisis, too. <laughs> yeah. No yeah. one can afford to live here if they're working here. Even the, working like, here. what we would consider, like, you talk about class, like, I know so many clients of mine who are, like, doctors, dentists, lawyers, people who you'd consider, like, upper middle class people who are, like, I can't afford a house. I can't afford a place <laughs> yeah. in Vancouver. And it's no. like, God, if you can't afford, like, yeah. 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 I think the biggest thing that we can take away from this is that, like, yeah, class and wealth are two definitely very different things, but they definitely intersect and intertwine. Mm -hmm. um, I think the only example that I can add that we haven't already spoken about is that, um, at least me, I can't speak for other people or society at large, but there are many people that I've met in my life who, I maybe this is my judgments, would have been like, you're classy. Like you're a classy individual. Mm. And that didn't necessarily mean that they were wealthy. They might have like been dressed you know, well or Yeah, everything they own might have been from a thrift store, but it's it's like a classy, gorgeous look. And I just like just the way they put themselves together and how they present themselves and speak and interact, I would just consider them to be classy. And then there's many people I've met that have a lot of money that I would not consider classy. <laughs> a, a good takeaway for people. If you're like poor or you know, lower class, study what makes someone upper class and maybe use that to your advantage. Mm. If you are upper class, maybe just be aware that you're uh, taking some opportunities away from people or treating them differently. Just something to be aware of. I think that's pretty much all we have to uh, talk about on this. Yeah. Good, that was a good way. I like yes. that. Yeah. I, I did like that too. I think mm. the entire theme of the podcast is about raising awareness. Yes. So all we can really this is do. hopefully an opportunity for people to gain some awareness around classism and how it negatively or positively impacts their lives and how maybe they are negatively impacting or positively impacting other people's lives and how that might relate to classism. Uh, I just want to thank both of you for joining me today. It's been really exciting and interesting conversation and I hope it resonates with our audience. So thank you. It was a fun. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for having us. Yes. Mm -hmm. We'll see you all next time. You've been listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book.